Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. On this week's show, posting June 26, 2015, we start exploring World Policy Journal's new summer 2015 issue and its special section, Climate's Cliff, with leading environmentalist Lester R. Brown. His lead article on energy is headlined, Fossil to Solar and Wind. We'll also point out other top stories in the WPJ summer issue. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports news service. Well, the deadline looms for a nuclear deal with Iran. And judging by this week's comments from its supreme leader, there are wide gaps between Tehran and the so-called P5 plus one nations. Ayatollah Ali Khamenei now demands that most sanctions be lifted before Tehran dismantles part of its nuclear infrastructure and before international inspectors verify that Iran is meeting its commitments. The U.S. and its allies have said sanctions would be eased only after Iran does those things. Khamenei also rules out any freeze on nuclear enrichment for as long as a decade and repeated his refusal to allow inspections of Iranian military sites. Those items run counter to a preliminary agreement that was announced back in April. And here at the White House, President Obama's press secretary, Josh Earnest, says the core U.S. strategy and intent remains the same to, quote, shut down every pathway they have to a nuclear weapon. And they would do that, he says, in exchange for sanctions relief. The U.S. maintains that Iran must allow inspectors access to suspicious sites anywhere in that country. The Cold War supposedly ended a quarter century ago, but the U.S. will contribute weapons, aircraft, and commandos for NATO's Rapid Reaction Force, Defense Secretary Ashton Carter saying it's in response to the growing security threat from Russia, no word on final troop levels. Meantime, a new study says that despite new worries about Russia, only 5 of 28 NATO members spend the recommended 2% of GDP on defense. The U.S., Britain, and Poland are among them, also the former Soviet Republic of Estonia, and surprisingly, fiscally challenged Greece. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. In questo giorno sentiamo quindi tutta la Chiesa universale unita con il Papa nell'assumere la sua responsabilità e nel rivolgere al mondo un messaggio di responsabilità di fronte a Dio, agli altri e a tutte le creature. Even before the Vatican formally presented an unprecedented encyclical on climate change last month, leaks revealed papal support for the dominant scientific view of humanity's contribution to global warming and likely damage from it, especially for the poor, a particular concern of Pope Francis. The document, titled Be Praised on the Care of Our Common Home, calls on all people, but the rich in particular, to meet the threat with reduced consumption of products and the energy it takes to make them from fossil fuels foremost. The Pope's message on climate discomforted many political conservatives around the world, including the large number in America now seeking the Republican presidential nomination. It also coincided with the new summer 2015 issue of World Policy Journal and its special cover package headlined Climate's Cliff. 
Foremost among the contributors is leading U.S. environmental expert and activist Lester R. Brown, head of the Earth Policy Institute and co-author of a new book from W.W. Norton and Company, The Great Transition, Shifting from Fossil Fuels to Solar and Wind Energy. There's an excerpt of that book in the new issue, and we talked about it recently for this podcast. Lester Brown, welcome to World Policy on Air. My pleasure. The Pope's well-known concern for the poor has now added moral momentum to the race against climate change and the shift from fossil fuels. How important do you think it will be in the United States, especially in a growing battle for the Republican presidential nomination? Well, uh, among other things, I think it's put the Republican candidates in, a, in a, uh, an, an awkward position, to say the least, because they've been playing this down and not uh, mentioning it uh, at all, for the most part, unless they wanted to uh, deny it. Um, so it's, it's going to be interesting, because here we have... Um, uh, one of the, the world, one of the world's leading religious leaders talking about uh, climate change and the need to do something about it. And so now it's not just um, the, 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 the Republican candidates dismissing, you know, scientists in a, in a general sort of way, but it's much more difficult to dismiss the Pope. Um, because of his uh, his his status in, in in the world, not just for for Catholics, so it's going to be interesting to see how they 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 try to uh, uh, work their way out of this uh, this sort of uh, trap they've they've actually set for themselves. And papal influence influence elsewhere in the world on combating climate change. It, it, it's a global matter, and uh, and I think the um, um, the the Pope has made that uh, clear. At least as important to the great fuel transition as moral, social, and environmental concerns you suggest may be the simple matter of cost. Talk about where in the world and by how much the price of producing wind energy to start is falling and its use growing. Well, there, there, there are a number of places. Um, one of the um, uh, most interesting developments in this field has been in, in China. Somewhat surprisingly, we don't think of them as being on the cutting edge of environmental issues, but um, the, the Chinese are um, building a, um, a huge amount of, uh, of wind farms uh, uh, in their country. Indeed, um, electricity from wind farms in China now exceeds that from nuclear power plants. Not only does it exceed it, but nuclear is growing very slowly in, in, in China, and that's, that's been the case from the beginning. But wind, which, which was growing very slowly, is now uh, growing very fast. And the wind growth curve that was you know, largely parallel at one point is now almost, uh, almost vertical. So to have the Chinese make this uh, massive commitment to wind energy is a major advance, not only for them, but for the entire world. Give us a corresponding update on the price and production of solar energy. The, um, there are some places in this country now where the cost of electricity from rooftop solar panels is about half that, which is charged by the local utility. Um, and uh, as you may know, utility prices vary a lot uh, depending on, on the part of the country and the, and the conditions where the electri electricity is being uh, generated. But um, the the idea that um, that solar solar panels can generate electricity at half the 
the price of the local utility is a major advance, and uh, it's leading to a situation where um, uh, the installation of panels on rooftops is shrinking the market for the local utility, and so the local utility has to raise its price to keep going, and that just feeds the cycle and makes things um, move even um, even faster. And this is sometimes referred to as the, the utility death spiral. But it, and- it's cre- it's creating a real uh, uh, difficulty for the for the utilities. And so, I gather, is uh, the the increasing price tag on energy from fossil fuels because of dwindling supplies, uh, more difficult extraction, and the cost that society now realizes uh, for cleaning up pollution and treating the ills it causes. Yes, when, whenever you're dependent on a finite resource that's gradually being uh, depleted, you're faced with, uh, over the long term, a rising cost curve. And that now applies to, to both coal and oil, um, of course. Um, so we're, um, we're, we're in a situation where the, the utilities are being squeezed and, uh, and the oil companies are, are seeing, um, the, the country gradually turning to electricity. Um, electric cars are, are going to dominate the future, I think, without question. And one of the reasons that they will is because the, the fuel cost per mile from an, an electric motor is about one third that. Uh, the fuel cost per mile from from gasoline from a gasoline burning engine. So the economics are very much in favor of both solar panels and electric cars. So I think what we're going to see is the progressive electrification um, of the, of the of the economy, whether it's transportation or housing or lighting or um, or what have you. And and this means we can we're we're, we're moving toward a a low carbon economy. And and, and that is, is, is in, in some ways, the most important uh, uh, dimension of this because climate change is um, a real threat. There's no, no question about that. And, and scientists are um, speak with one voice on this. But we now have a chance to respond to the, um, the threat posed um, uh, by carbon emissions from fossil fuels. And this is, this is an exciting period. The other interesting thing is that the geography of um, almost overnight, the geography of the world energy economy has changed because throughout most of our lifetime, certainly mine, we got much of our energy from halfway around the world, from Saudi Arabia and other countries in the Middle East. Now we can get it from solar panels, you know, 10 feet above our heads on the top of our homes. And and that is, is it's just a huge shift. I mean, it, it represents um, the localization of the world energy economy. And, 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 and that was not even, um, you know, prominently discussed in this, in, the, in, in what I've called the great transition as we shift from fossil fuels to solar and wind energy. Talk about how you see all these cost factors bringing a lot of investors into further development of alternate energy technology and production, whether out of social conscience or just bottom line profit seeking. Well, um, one of the, the most interesting things for me in this current situation is to see the number of billionaires really, really moving toward uh, renewable energy. That includes uh, Warren Buffett, for example, who had earlier, a few years ago, committed $15 billion 
that's billion, not million, to renewable energy in the Southwest. And now he's committed um, another $15 billion. Then you have other billionaires like Ted Turner, who has now seven uh, solar power plants, in the, uh, mostly in the southwestern uh, United States. We have Phil Anschutz from Denver, who was a, a coal and oil billionaire. He's now building in Wyoming, which is a wind-rich state with only you know, 800,000 people or so, he's building a 3,000-megawatt wind farm and a transmission line of 700 miles long that will take that uh, wind-generated electricity, very low cost, from Wyoming to California. Now, while Wyoming only has 800,000 people, California has 28 million people. Um, so this is not a government program or something. This is this is wealthy people like Buffett, Turner, Phil Anschutz, and and uh, uh, Michael Bloomberg, um, and and several other uh, billionaires whose names are names are well known. Um, really, really putting their their money in in renewables now. And and I I think this is even more important than the the you know the amount that they're investing, which is huge by any standard. But it 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 also says to the public, this is. Where the smart money is going, and mainstream Wall Street will will um, is already recognizing this, and they're beginning to figure out how to shift more and more money away from fossil fuels, away from oil companies and coal companies, and to um, uh, solar and uh, and to the development of solar and um, and wind energy. But while big money may see substantial return on investment, uh, you say the biggest winners uh, in this transitional period are ordinary homeowners. Why and how? Well, the the idea that we can use our rooftops, which are already there. We don't have to build them. They're there. All you have to do is put the solar panels on them, and you can generate enough electricity, not only to run, run your house, but if you have an electric car, to run your car as well. And all you need is a battery um, um, in the in, in the basement or someplace to uh, to store some of the electricity um, uh, that you use to uh, uh, recharge the car battery. So we're looking at the um, the one, the electrification of the energy economy, and two, the the, the shift in sources of of electricity from you know the old-fashioned coal-fired power plants to uh, solar panels and wind farms. In fact, you write that energy transition will change not only how we pay for the power we need, but how we view the world and view ourselves. Explain that. Well, we've we've always looked at um, the. I guess ever since um, uh, we, we, as a species, discovered fire, we've been looking for things to burn. And for a long, long time, it was wood, and then it became coal, and then coal and oil. And, and now, suddenly, we don't have to burn anymore. We're looking at sources of energy that can um, um, produce electricity um, without uh, any carbon emissions. We see two U.S. states, for example, Iowa and South Dakota, I think, are now up around 20% of their electricity from uh, um, from wind. And, and in Iowa, they're talking about being half um, wind um, within the next uh, two or three years. Um, Texas is generating 10% of its electricity from wind, and there are huge investments going into wind farms in Texas now and transmission lines lines that will take that 
um, wind-generated electricity into states like Mississippi and Louisiana, which are not strong wind states. So the market is beginning to operate now in a a very uh, encouraging and exciting and, and constructive way. Well, of course, there are the big wind farms and the big uh, solar panel farms, but uh, to go back to your notion of every man's roof, uh, we know utilities like gas and electric companies, even telephone and cable TV, are not always the most responsive when we have a problem. But won't the fractionalizing of energy production and distribution leave us in an even more every man for himself situation when there's no big provider to call for help with a problem? It might to uh, to some degree, but it, but there, the other side of that coin is there's reduced vulnerability, because if a line is you know goes down in a storm 40 miles away, it won't affect your electricity because yours is coming from your um, your rooftop. Um, so uh, you can look at it uh, both ways, but I tend to to think of it as as the the rooftop solar panel being much less. Uh, vulnerable to disruption than than the oil flow coming to this country from the Middle East and oil tankers and so forth. And I recently returned from Greece where there's an even simpler form where people put put water tanks up on their roofs, let the sun heat them, and they don't have to create electricity, but they avoid having to use electrical heating to get hot water. that's that's another option we have, and um, in 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 many situations that might prove to be the more uh, the more efficient one. Um, I know that in the United States now, the the big builders, uh, almost all of them, are automatically including solar panels on rooftops. So, um, and 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 it's a strong selling point because the idea of buying a new home that doesn't have an electric bill is is kind of exciting. Um, and, 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 and it's a novelty in the sense that most of us have never lived in homes that didn't have electric bills. Well, the bottom line may be key to energy transition. Your new book also underscores the importance of government policies. Let's talk about some, starting with what's called the feed-in tariff, or FIT. What's its role? Well, most countries um, that have moved ahead with renewable energy, whether it's Germany or Denmark or now the United States uh, um, or, or China, provide some sort of an incentive in the early stages um, to make it economic to use the new technologies. But as the manufacturing of solar cells, for example, becomes mass manufacture, the, the cost of the panels you know, keeps, uh, keeps dropping, and um, uh, we we find ourselves not needing any um, um, any, any government uh, support anymore, and and this is one of the exciting things that the economics are now falling into place where the market is going to be the big driver in in this transition, not the government. You also discuss renewable portfolio standards or RPS. What are they? How do they work? Well, some some states, to uh, sort of get this process underway of shifting from fossil fuels to renewables, have set up um, um, standards where each 
often it's done at the state level, what percentage of the electricity that local utility supplies must be must come from renewable sources. And it's typically between uh, 10 and 20 percent, but it, it sort of gets them started. Um, and then once they become familiar with it, uh, then sometimes they, 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 they move ahead very fast. I mean, the thing to keep in mind is that the energy economy here in the past has been, you know, oil companies and coal companies, and the people in the oil co- companies have only known one thing, and that is, you know, always finding and, and producing more oil. But that that era has come to an end now, and um, we're gonna, they're going to have to do some basic rethinking. And what they should be doing and what a few um, of the oil companies are doing is to beginning to think of themselves as energy companies, not as oil companies per se. Well, for the time being, we're still familiar with the debate over carbon controls or outright uh, uh, carbon tax or a, a cap-and-trade system for regulating carbon emissions. Uh, what do you think best and why? Well, my own sense is we're not going to need either one, that the, that the, the economics of, of, of you know, the falling cost of renewable sources of energy is making them more and more competitive. And the, 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 one of the exciting things about renewable energy, we don't think about it very much this way, um, um, is if, if you're using fossil fuels, um, the more you use today, the less you have tomorrow. But with solar and wind energy, how much you use today has no effect on how much is available tomorrow. So, so there's not the, the psychology of, um, of um, depletion working here as it is in the fossil fuel industry inevitably. While new policies and production systems are being developed, you say it's easier for society and each of us individually to pay more attention to energy efficiency in all the equipment we rely on. How much progress has been made on that score in various segments of energy use? It hasn't grown nearly as fast as has the um, the more embryonic, um, you know, solar and, and uh, wind energy investments. Energy efficiency is harder to sell than renewable energy because re- you can see renewable energy. You can see the, you know, the solar panels or the, the wind farms and what have you. Efficiency is, is you know, investing in, uh, in, in, in new household appliances, for example, for your home and making sure you get the, you know, the much more efficient ones now on the market than when you made the original purchase, you know, 15 years ago. How big a role in the evolution of efficiency is played by government, national, state, local regulations versus the individual? Well, it's a combination of all three. And one of the exciting things um, that we've seen recently is how cities have emerged as, as you know, with a very prominent role in the, in the transition. And cities have done what national governments could never do. Um, I think San Francisco has set a goal of getting all of its electricity from renewable sources within the next, I don't know, three years or, or maybe five years. It, it's a very short uh, time period. And there are other cities in the world that are doing the same thing. Munich, for example, has a very ambitious uh, um, uh, transition um, uh, program uh, in, in place. Um, so we're seeing... We're seeing this, and we're also seeing the. Um, we're talking about the economics in 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 Australia, for example. There are places now where solar has become so competitive that coal-generated electricity could not compete, even if the coal were free. 
And the reason for that is that if, you, if you're using coal, you have to have a large um, you know, grid to distribute the electricity. You can't have a coal-fired power plant in every backyard. So building that grid and maintaining it is an important part of electricity bills from, you know, in, in times past. Now suddenly you just eliminate that, that part of the bill. And, 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 and that's why the cost is coming down and why uh, renewables are, are becoming so competitive. And the role of the individual still in, in terms of choices and efficiency? It's, um, it, it's partly an educational um, thing and understanding, one, uh, the need to make this transition and, and, you know, the obligation we have to future generations to prevent climate change from spiraling out of control. So that's a, uh, that's a big one. But the, the other is, you know, knowing that we can do it now is is itself very reassuring and and we uh, it sort of eliminates the the uncertainty there were a lot of people who were committed to this transition but didn't really see quite how it 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 could could happen we can now see that and we see a country like Denmark which i think last january got 62% of its electricity from wind and Denmark will probably be the first country that will get um, over half of its electricity you know for for the course of a year um, from uh, from wind energy, but there are others coming. Germany is moving uh, uh, very fast. One of the world's leading industrial countries. Um, so we're going to see uh, um, this this revolution beginning to feed on itself, largely for economic reasons, also for environmental reasons, but largely for economic reasons. Lester Brown, thank you. My pleasure. Leading U.S. environmental expert and activist Lester R. Brown is head of the Earth Policy Institute and co-author of the new W.W. Norton book, The Great Transition, Shifting from Fossil Fuels to Solar and Wind Energy. There's an excerpt in the Special Climates Cliff section of World Policy Journal's new summer 2015 issue. Also featured in the summer 2015 issue of World Policy Journal, you'll find stories on China's smothering sky, environmental threats in Nicaragua and the Arctic, and a look beyond and behind energy-saving light-emitting diodes. Plus, tune into next week's podcast as we talk with WPJ Managing Editor Jaffa Frederick about answers from six continents to the new issue's big question, who has the most to lose from climate change in your country? World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor-publisher David Andelman, managing editor Jaffa Frederick, online news editor and podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. <laughs>